the first reading is, as, as Stephen said, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the call of Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What an abundant blessing. Now, I wondered how Stephen was going to bring crepes into a message from Romans this morning. And now I understand. It's all about sugar and mushrooms, apparently, and accepting them. So Romans 14.1 through to 15.13, uh, bear with me, starting from 14 verse 1, the weak and the strong, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master's servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment, before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. 
it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glory, glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. We'll do miracles. Thanks, Daryl. Great to be with you all this morning. My name's Mark. If we haven't met one of the pastors here, it's great to be with you all. Uh, there's quite a bit to cover in that passage. So if there's a, a question that comes out of it for you that I don't cover this morning, then don't despair. Save it for next week where we're going to have a bit of a Q&A of the whole series of Romans. So if there are, there are questions that are on your mind from any of the weeks in Romans, there'll be a chance to, to ask them next week. Well, most of us, I'm sure, have had the experience of being part of a group, perhaps, perhaps even being part of a church that becomes divided on some issue to the point where relationships are damaged and uh, perhaps where people are hurt as well. This is the, the situation that was going on in the Roman church. So it was a church that had two very different groups of people in it. Uh, there were those from a, a Jewish background who were used to avoiding certain kinds of food and keeping certain kinds of days holy. And then, on the other hand, there were the non-Jews. There were the Gentiles who, who didn't have any of these beliefs at all. Um, so you had a church where you had people with completely different, not completely, but, but quite different views on what a Christian ought to do or ought not to do. And you can imagine the, the threat that this poses to the unity in the church. Uh, as Stephen said before, we had a barbecue last week raising money for, for the youth camp, which was, 
which was a lot of fun, raised a bit of money, but just had a, had a bit of fun with it as well. But, but you can imagine the tension in the church barbecue in Rome, uh, where, you have, where you've got one group who's laughing at the people that, want to have, that um, don't want to have bacon in their sandwich, but you've got the other half um, who are judging the people who do. Not very loving and not very inviting. And it doesn't paint a great picture of the church for, for those on the outside looking in either. Just going to leave that photo of bacon there for as long as I can, just to, just to keep, you, keep you happy. Um, but Paul tackles this issue head on in the book of Romans. Uh, this passage is a helpful one for us as a church today where our issue might not be over meat, but we, we're bound to have different viewpoints on certain issues. And the big point that Paul makes here is that rather than pleasing ourselves, what we ought to do is to seek the unity of the church and to seek the spiritual well-being of one another. And Paul gives us three reasons for that. The first reason is that God's judgment is all that matters. Chapter 14, verse 1, accepts the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. The people in the church who had grown up under the Jewish law, um, they, were, they were used to only eating meat from certain animals and, and meat that was prepared in a certain way. They were used to strict rules about what happened on the Sabbath day and, and the religious festivals. And what Paul is meaning here is not that, not that their faith is inferior, but more that this is a conscience issue. There are certain things that they don't feel right doing. And Paul tells both of these groups, the, the strong ones, the Gentiles, the, the weak ones, the Jews, he, t- he tells them both that you've got to accept one another, even when you disagree about something. Why? Well, because God has accepted that person who you disagree with. Uh, chapter 14, verse 3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. God has made the only judgment about that person that matters, and on all of us for that matter. Paul reminds us of that in verse 10. He says, Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. See, God's judgment carries a lot more weight than our judgment does. We might look at someone with, with contempt or with judgment if we disagree with them, but God's judgment on that person, if they've trusted in Jesus, is that they are acceptable to him. The big message of the, the book of Romans, in fact, the, the whole Bible, is that God has made a way for us to be right with him. If you're here this morning just, just checking church out or, or working out whether Christianity is for you, this, this is what we call the gospel message, that we can stand before God acceptable in his sight only because Jesus has taken our wrongdoings on himself. He's paid our debt. And so the only judgment on us that ultimately matters is God's verdict of not guilty. And so the the believer who thinks it's okay to eat meat and the believer who doesn't think it's okay to eat meat, they're, they're both genuinely seeking to serve Jesus in response to what he's done for them. And so to to judge them or to despise them just because we disagree with them wouldn't be right. 
So what does this mean for us? That's, that's kind of the, the big point here. But what, what does it mean for us? Well, to answer that, we have to be clear on what Paul means here by disputable matters. Because there are a few things that it can't mean. All right? Firstly, something that is explicitly commanded or forbidden in the Bible is not a disputable matter. It's not up for debate whether I should be able to embezzle money from the church. It's not up for debate whether a couple in the church identifying as Christians ought to be living and sleeping together. There are some things that are not matters of dispute. Something is not a disputable matter either if the gospel message is at stake. If anything is being added to or subtracted from the message that salvation is in Jesus alone, then that's not a matter for dispute. Disputable matters then are where gospel truth and gospel conduct are at stake. I'm not sorry, aren't at stake, but where gospel unity is being threatened. It's where gospel truth and gospel conduct aren't at stake, but where gospel unity is being threatened. That's that's a disputable matter. And we know that because in Paul's other letters that he writes, where the, the truth of the gospel is at stake or where commands in the Bible are at stake, Paul is not this even-handed. Paul makes it clear what is needed and what isn't. So where might we as a church, at Trinity Church Modbury today, where might we be in danger of making non-gospel issues a cause of division? Well, perhaps it's over issues of Christian freedom. Should a follower of Jesus drink alcohol, do yoga, let their kids read Harry Potter books. Now, perhaps it's over questions of theology and church practice. Should we baptize babies? Should we encourage speaking in tongues? There'll be, there'll be different views on those things in this room. And it's right to think through these issues and to hold viewpoints on them. In fact, that's a good thing. It's okay to respectfully present our viewpoints to other people who might disagree. But it would be wrong to let these issues divide us. Perhaps it's social issues that might threaten our unity. Now, I'm sure in this room there are a range of opinions about face masks, QR check-ins, restrictions on church gatherings, vaccinations, you name it. COVID throws these, these issues at us. And Stephen spoke helpfully a couple of weeks ago from Romans 13 about how we should respond to the government with, with regard to COVID, how we should respond to the government's laws, even if we don't agree with them. I want to make a really brief point on how we should interact with each other. And this, this goes beyond COVID. This is a good general principle. And that's to say that it's, it's perfectly, perfectly legitimate to have a strong, sincere viewpoint on an issue that you care deeply about, while at the same time recognising that the truth of the gospel and gospel conduct aren't at stake. That is, it's not a heaven and hell issue. A person could disagree with you with complete gospel integrity. And if the gospel isn't at stake, then it's not an issue worth breaking gospel unity over. It's not an issue for followers of Jesus to divide over. We can disagree for sure, but not divide. And so that's the first point, that God's judgment is all that matters. And the second point is that God's kingdom is all that matters. 
Chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another, Paul says. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother and sister. Paul is speaking to the strong crowd here. He's speaking to the Gentiles, the people who think that eating meat is okay. And Paul says to them in verse 14, I agree with you. Eating meat is okay. Christians are free to eat meat. Nothing is unclean in God's sight. But, but you have a responsibility to care for your brother and sister whose conscience prevents them from eating meat. Because if someone genuinely believes that they're disobeying God by eating meat, then for them, it is an act of disobedience to do that. Because they think that they're doing something that's wrong. Have a look at verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So imagine I'm, I'm driving my car down the, down the street, down what I think is a 50-kilometer-an-hour speed limit street, and, and I'm running late to get somewhere, and I think, oh, I don't see any speed cameras anywhere. I'll, I'll up it to 60Ks, and so I'm driving, driving at 60Ks. But, but without realizing it, I'm actually driving in a 60-kilometer-an-hour speed zone. I think it's 50, but it's actually 60. So technically, I'm obeying the law. I'm driving at the speed limit. But I'm still, in my heart, I'm still rebelling, aren't I? I'm still breaking the law in my heart. And it's the same thing here. Doing the right thing is wrong at a heart level if I think it's wrong. And so encouraging someone to do something that they think is wrong, even if, I, even if I'm 100% sure that it's right, it's encouraging them to sin. And so what Paul is telling us is don't tempt someone to act against their own conscience. Now, just to be clear, the conscience thing doesn't work both ways. So if I disobey God, but I think I'm obeying him, then I am still guilty. There's, there's no defense here for people who have done evil things in the name of Jesus. Now, perhaps it's clear in your minds that, from what the Bible says, that there's, there's no issue with you drinking a glass of wine, reading a Harry Potter book while you wait for your yoga class to start. There's, there's no issue with that. Um, but we have to be careful not to push anyone in that direction if their conscience isn't ready. Because we can damage a person's faith by making them violate their own conscience. In verse 17, Paul tells us, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So to put it bluntly, God's kingdom is about so much more than my freedoms and my comforts. If convincing someone to eat meat is going to harm them spiritually, then don't do it. There's no pork crackling in the world. There's no ribeye steak in the world that is worth making someone stumble in their faith. Christian freedom is a good thing. It's great that there are so many things that we're free to do. But don't use that freedom in a way that's unloving, Paul is saying. Instead, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. God's kingdom is what matters. Building one another up in God's church. And can you, can you see what a countercultural 
viewpoint this is because the message that we're bombarded with in our world is that my right to live the way that I want is sacred. You do you, I'll do me, and how dare anyone try to limit my freedom? But following Jesus means that I'm more than an individual. I'm part of a body. We saw that in Romans chapter 12. And in view of God's mercy to me, there will be times when I worship God by limiting my freedom for the sake of other people. This is part of the ongoing debt that we heard about last week, to love one another. Uh, so just as an example of that, my dad is a Catholic. He's, he's grown up Catholic, been, a, been that way his whole life. And he genuinely believes that it's wrong for him to eat meat on Friday. So he thinks that if he was to eat meat on a Friday, that would be, that would be disobeying God. Now, I don't agree with that. But at the same time, it would be unhelpful for me to take him to the Cooper's Ale House on a Friday night and order a 600-gram schnitzel and eat it in front of him. You can see that just wouldn't be helpful for his conscience. If someone has come to faith from a, a different background, maybe a, a different religion or a different lifestyle, there may be things for them that, that take a while for them to be able to do with a clear conscience. If someone's left behind a lifestyle of, of heavy drinking, for example, to, to follow Jesus, um, then that's going to be unhelpful for them. They, they, they may find it hard to do that with a, with a clear conscience, to drink even moderate amounts of alcohol. And so while that doesn't mean that I have to quit drinking entirely, I'm not going to be inviting them to the pub either. Now on that, I just want to draw a distinction between two, two different things here. So on the one hand issues of conscience, but on the other hand, legalism. So if, if the Jewish Christians were telling the Gentile Christians that they had to stop eating meat to be right with God, Paul would have addressed this issue very differently. In fact, we see that in the book of Galatians, for example. Because in that case, it would be a gospel issue. They, they would be adding to the gospel message. They would be saying, you have to do more than just trust in Jesus to be saved. And similarly, if I was to, to stand up here and teach that a proper Christian must abstain from alcohol to, to be saved, then, then that would be legalism as well, because it would be changing the gospel message. Giving up my freedom to, to protect someone else's conscience for the sake of God's kingdom is very different to having someone else impose their views on my freedom. There's, there's a difference between those two things. So God's judgment is all that matters. God's kingdom is all that matters. And the third point is that God's glory is all that matters. In chapter 15, Paul shows that behind this issue of what gets served up at the church barbecue is an unhelpful heart attitude, a desire to please ourselves. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. The person who holds to their spiritual freedom at the expense of someone else's spiritual well-being is pleasing themselves. They're, they're doing what's most immediately beneficial for them. And you can see how this sort of heart attitude plays out in lots of different ways, can't you? It, it leads to a mindset of consumer Christianity where... Basically, I see church as being a product or a service that meets my needs. It's a bit like a, a local cafe. So if I, if I go to a cafe, it's probably because I like the coffee there. 
I'm there for me. I've got no intention of contributing in any way apart from paying for my coffee. If I get bad service one day or, or a better cafe opens down the street, then I'll move on. I'll find a better product that suits my needs. Can you see that? That's quite a self-centered way of thinking about church. The alternative is that each of us, verse 2, should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. And Jesus provides us with the ultimate example of this. Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Paul's quoting from Psalm 69 in the Old Testament there. And and the point that he's making is that we all spend our lives heaping insults on God by our sin. And Jesus takes all of that on himself on the cross. Nothing could be more selfless than Jesus dying for us. A church that loves and follows Jesus shouldn't be full of self-pleasers. God wants us to have this same attitude towards one another that Jesus had. Why? Well, so that with one heart, sorry, with one mind and one voice, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So can you see the the end goal here is God's glory? We see it again in verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So if you remember, this, this whole passage started with um, this instruction to accept one another in chapter 14, verse 1, to accept one another even when we disagree. Why? Because Jesus accepted us first. And God is honored when the church lives this out together. God displayed his own welcoming heart by welcoming not just Jews, but Gentiles as well into his family. He was fulfilling the promise that he made in in Genesis chapter 12, which Daryl read for us just earlier, to bless all peoples on earth. And in Romans chapter 15, um, you would have seen that Paul quotes a whole list of other Old Testament passages that that tell of Gentiles one day worshipping God. The fact that that Jews and Gentiles could worship together as a church displayed the awesome power of God's love to bring people together to praise him. Jews and Gentiles are, are the complete opposites. They are different in every way. And yet God is in the business of bringing incompatible, different people together to worship him. I mean, just just look around you. we, We are a very different, diverse family. The church ought to show the world what God is like, how worthy he is of praise and honor that that such different people would welcome one another in his name. What a compelling witness it is to the outside world when the church is like this, bearing with our differences and accepting one another in love, seeking each other's good. On the other hand, when we divide over trivial differences, we're robbing God of the glory that he deserves. And it all begins right here in our hearts, understanding the extraordinary way that Jesus has accepted and welcomed us, understanding just how 
precious the church is in God's sight. Paul has begun this passage with the issue of what gets served up at the church barbecue. Um, He's told us that if the gospel isn't at stake, then we can't let our differences affect gospel unity. And he's opened our eyes up to the heart issue that lies beneath the surface of all of this. He's called us not to please ourselves, but to protect the unity of the church and to protect the spiritual well-being of every member. He's reminded us that God's judgment is all that matters. God's kingdom is all that matters. God's glory is all that matters. So when, when you next find yourself disagreeing with someone here at church, I want you to ask yourself, is the gospel on the line here? Is the gospel at stake? And if it's not, then let's not let the issue destroy God's work.